My daughter-in-law, Melissa, is in the advertising business up in uh, L.A. She's an agent. And she was telling me how feverishly people are working to get known faces in these Super Bowl commercials. Because when people recognize a face, they pay attention. And that's what the advertisements are about, getting people to pay attention to your product. Because if people don't pay attention to your product, you go out of business. And Jesus used a familiar process. He needed to get attention on his message. He used miracles to get people to focus, to say, what is going on? And, 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 and I need to understand this. I need to watch this. I need to listen to this person. Well, that worked for Jesus during his ministry, but it also worked for the apostles. As we read the book of Acts, we must understand that what Luke wanted his readers, you and me and Theophilus and all the readers over the centuries to understand is that Jesus was still at work. And that it mattered that people paid attention to what was being said and what was being done. And so after Jesus ascended into heaven, the first thing he did with his apostles 50 days later at the day of Pentecost was to perform an overwhelming miracle that got people's attention on his apostles. And it says 3,000 people responded to Peter's sermon. And we have to wonder how much attention would people have paid to Peter's sermon if there hadn't been this outpouring of God's Spirit on his people and this, this speaking in tongues issue, this language uh, phenomenon, this miracle. But the greatest part of the miracle was that 3,000 of these people came to Christ. And then we read about the church, and we read one of the things we, that, that was going on in the early church is that people were in awe of the, of the signs and wonders that were being performed by the apostles. And one of those signs and wonders we read about in chapter 3, where once again, the Holy Spirit, working through Peter and John, got people's attention focused on Jesus. It's a simple miracle. Well, it's simple to read about it. I'm sure the guy who was healed didn't think it was simple. But if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 3. And I want to I read the miracle, and then I want to make some comments about how Peter and the folks responded to it. One day, this is uh, uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Look at us. You get that? Look at us. So the, get, we want your attention. We want your attention. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Surprise, surprise. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. Hey, but I'm as broke as you are. But what I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So they got the folks' attention. This is a, a, a marvelous miracle. This guy was born unable to walk. And the, the, the terms used for feet and ankles, is the, the only place in Scripture that these two words are used. Uh, Luke was a physician, and he was making sure his reader understood that this was a genuine, bodified miracle. No question that God recalibrated this guy. And he was so excited. You could vision the picture. Peter and John, these two apostles, right? this guy's jumping up and down and yelling and screaming. You, you would be too. So it got all people's attention. So as people came, and it says they rushed in from, from all over the temple, they rushed over there to see what in the world is going on. And it says they were amazed and perplexed. The same words we read in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit baptized these new believers. People were amazed. They were in awe. God got their attention. And then the next thing we read is that Peter took advantage of the situation. Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the, 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 the people were asking questions. What's going on? And some were even ridiculing the, uh, the, the, the Christians because of this phenomenon. So they're drunk. So Peter, at that point, was responding to words, to questions, and to accusations. Here, I love this thing, Peter, when Peter saw this, and I inserted the words, opportunity. I've got their attention. Don't blow it. Because Jesus in Acts 1-8 said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And Peter said, here's an opportunity to be a witness. And so he took advantage of that. He said to the people, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And this whole response that Peter made, this whole, I call it sermon number one here, this whole sermon is about Jesus. It's about how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. It's about how Jesus was the great prophet himself. We'll come back and look at that. But he said, I've got this opportunity. I'm not going to blow it. But notice how he introduced it. He said, why does this surprise you? Jesus has been doing this. We've been doing signs and wonders. Don't you people pay attention? Pay attention. You shouldn't be surprised at this. We have God himself at work right here in Jerusalem. Why does this surprise you? And why do you look at us as if we did this? Come on, you're Jews. You know people don't do this stuff. Only God could do what you just saw. Not us. So, how did it happen? And notice he uses the same 
language that God used with Moses. When Moses said, you're sending me back to, to Egypt, to the Jews, why would they listen to me? He said, here's what you tell them. Here's what you tell them. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has sent me to you. And that's the language Peter used. You must understand that just as God sent Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, God has sent his only son, the God of Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. That's what this is all about. This isn't a circus act. We don't do these miracles so you can be impressed with us. In fact, it's not a boss that you should be impressed with. But this Jesus, whom you turned over to Pilate to be crucified, is still alive. And he's still active on planet Earth. And he's still doing incredible things, like healing this guy, but so much more. He's not just teaching people how to walk physically. He's teaching us how to walk into a magnificent, beautiful life. So he made sure they understood that this was in the name of Jesus. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made whole strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So that's the explanation. But then he didn't stop there. He said, okay, do you understand what's going on? Jesus is doing this, all right? Verse 17, now, now that I've got your attention and now I've given you an explanation, now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as your leaders did. You didn't know what you were doing. You were blinded by Satan. You didn't know you were killing the, the master of the universe, the creator, the source of life. You didn't know that. And neither did your leaders. It sounds like Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. They're stupid. They're ignorant. They just, they missed it all. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching. They saw the life that he lived. They killed him anyway. But they didn't know what they were doing. In fact, this gets a little theologically interesting here. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. So in your own distorted blind, ignorant way of crucifying Jesus, you fulfilled God's eternal purpose. That his son, the Messiah, which all the prophets talked about, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer, his servant, the Christ. And so these 
Jews listening to this would have to understand from their own scriptures and see the fulfillment that Jesus is who the prophets were talking about all those years, all those centuries. And then he said, repent. Where's Michael? I'm not saying this to you. Michael preached a wonderful sermon on repentance. Yeah, well, you can repent too if you want, but that's not what it, Yeah, if you remember that, great. Repent means to a 180. Repent. You did a terrible thing. Turn from that. Repent and turn to God. And that's what repent means. Turn from this way to that way. Repent and turn to God so that. So that you repent and turn to God so that, first of all, your sins may be wiped out. That's the eternal message of Jesus Christ. Nobody in this room crucified Jesus Christ. But all have sinned and come short of God's glory. We all need to turn, to repent and turn to God and have our sins forgiven through the, through the power of Jesus Christ. And as I read this literature, what these people did, how these people treated Jesus, and Peter is saying, even you people who did this terrible thing to God's Son, to God's only begotten Son, to the Messiah, to the great servant, to the anointed one, you, after what you have done, can repent and have your sins wiped away. So if there's anyone in this room who says, you don't know what I've done, doesn't matter. You have never done anything more heinous than what Peter had just reminded these people they had done. In fact, let me read to you. Go back to the explanation in verse 13. And listen to these contrasts. The God, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, but you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, even though Pilate wanted to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be released instead. You killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And you know what? After all that, if you repent and turn to God, your sins will be wiped away. Peter had their attention. He saw an opportunity, and he used it to help people understand that as terrible as their acts were, our loving, gracious God will reach out and welcome them. And you and me. That's why Jesus 
came here in the first place. He said it himself. I've come to seek and to save the lost. So repent and turn to God so that first your sins may be wiped out and then second, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He saves us from our sin. But when we repent, we turn from our sin and we turn to a new way of life. And, and, and part of this whole salvation experience, part of this whole concept of coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ is to deliver us from the guilt of our sin, the penalty of sin, but it's also to deliver us from the power of sin and to teach us a whole new way of life. Repent. Turn from your sin to God. So not just a matter of stopping doing something that we were doing before, but it's starting to do something. It's building a living, day-by-day -day relationship with none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over and over again in this exhortation from verses 17 through 26, well, four different times in these few verses, four different times, he talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophetic utterances. And so as we read this, as we read what Peter was explaining and telling these uh, uh, early Jews about Jesus, uh, it should give us confidence in our message that this Jesus we worship, this Jesus who is our Savior, he's the real deal. He's the real deal. And over and over again, Peter puts figure upon figure, scripture upon scripture, to demonstrate to his listeners that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And Jesus claimed to be able, qualified, legitimately able to forgive sins is the real deal. And so the first context, when we're reading narrative literature, we have to look at two contexts. The first is the context of what's being described. And so this is what Peter was doing with this opportunity. He was explaining to them that Jesus is the Christ and that he forgives sins and he launches us into a superior, most, more beautiful way of life. But then the second context we look at is Luke's context. 30 years later, Luke is writing about this to a particular audience, to a guy named Theophilus and to the Greeks. And he wants them to understand. So in a sense, by repeating what Peter said, Luke is once again telling his readers this same truth. That as the centuries, as people read this, they say, wow, Jesus was real. This salvation that I have accepted, it's valid, it's real. But you know what? Other people need to hear this too. <laughs> That's why Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. And when I read the, what Peter said to the crippled man, silver and gold, I love the King James version of this, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. When I read that, I, my mind went again back to Moses. When God is calling Moses into the, to lead Israel out of Egypt, 
He said, who am I? <laughs> I'm just a shepherd. I've been out here all these years herding sheep. You want me to go lead the people out of Israel? I can't do that. I, I don't have the gifts. I don't have the capacity. I'm not even a good speaker. I'm not a good convincer. God said, well, what's that in your hand? I said, well, it's a rod. It's a rod. It's all I got. Just me and the rod. God said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and turned it into a snake. God said, now pick it up by its tail. You don't ever pick up a snake by the tail. Pick it up and it turned back into a rod. That's in chapter 3. Then chapter 4, when Moses and his family are heading back to Egypt, one of the things that Moses wrote about that he took with him, back with him. The rod of God. So that simple rod that he had had in his hand, now he's calling, this is God's rod. And then the plagues, often, he used his rod to initiate the plagues. And then when they were going out of Egypt, and they came to the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh's army is behind them, the Red Sea is in front of them, God said to Moses, stretch your rod over the sea. And the sea parted. And then shortly after they got across the Red Sea, and they're heading across the wilderness, a group called the, Amale uh, the Amalek, Amal Amalekites, met them at Rephidim, this mountain and valley, they call it Rephidim. And uh, Joshua was the general, and Moses said, Joshua, you take the troops and you go out and fight. I'm going up on the Mount of Rephidim with the rod of God, and I will be praying for you. And when I hold my hand up, you'll win the battle. This simple rod, it's all he had. But when he turned it over to God, it became, I don't call it a magic thing, but sort of. And so I ask myself, what's in my hand? What has God given me to do? Now, I, I don't perform miracles where lame people walk. And probably most of you don't. It is still going on. I've been in no, numerous countries where these, the power of God is still doing these kind of miracles. Not so much here. Of healing. Physical. But when Jesus told his disciples, after I'm gone, you're going to do greater works than I do. Because you're going to bring about a different kind of healing. And my guess would be that most of the folks in our room this morning have experienced Jesus' healing. When you ask him to forgive your sins. And if any person is in Christ, she is a new creation. All things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. If I had to make a choice, as a cripple to be able to walk or to have my sins forgiven and be a new creation I would choose the latter in fact later in this 
pericope this story. The, Peter and John got arrested and they, they were being questioned by the authorities. And, and uh, they said, we, they, they talked among themselves and said, we would like to deny this uh, miracle, this guy being healed from being crippled, but we can't. He's right here. And all those people have seen him. So we can't deny it. All we can do is tell them you're going to be in trouble if you keep preaching this Jesus and this resurrection stuff. Because we don't believe that. And we don't want you preaching it. And we see all these people coming to Jesus. 3,000. And this is then in the chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, it grew to be 5,000. And these Sadducees and these Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were being threatened. If this thing doesn't stop, they're going to put us out of business. But we can't deny what's going on. And so I asked myself, okay, what, when I present the gospel to somebody I know, is there any undeniable miracle? of a reformed life, of God in his power at work in a human life. As I read about the fruit of the Spirit, and I talk about this a lot, but this is meat and potatoes. This is nuts and bolts. Am I being shaped into the image of Christ? And as people observe your life and mine, is there evidence that God is at work in us? That this incredible miracle is actually going on? Somebody asked me one time, if somebody tried to convict you of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to make you guilty? This may sound self-serving, but I don't care. I was down at Lowe's Thursday getting some lumber. Some, we had to cut some shelves out of these big 4 by 8 plywood thing. Pretty heavy. So I helped the guy load it. He's a young man there. I helped him load it on the cart and helped him get him back there. And I helped him put him in the thing with us. And he said, man, you're, you're, most people don't do this. And he said, you're, you're helpful. And uh, then we were talking later, and, thing, and he said, and I was, you know, I asked him questions about himself and all, and, and uh, he, he uh, complimented me on being a nice guy. And I thought, well, I'm glad you don't know some other people. And I said, you know why I'm a nice guy? Because Jesus has changed my life. He could change yours. Have you ever heard about Jesus? And we talked, and he's going back to church. <laughs> we didn't get on our knees and have a moment there at Lowe's. He <laughs> would have got fired, and they would have thrown me out of the store. But it was just a, a life that cares, that's interested, that helps. That's a miracle. And you're a miracle. And the same commission that 
God gave the apostles, you will be my witnesses. And I will give miracles to get people's attention so you can witness to them. Your miracle and mine probably won't be, could be, but may not be, probably won't be healing crippled people or making blind people see. Our miracle is a transformation of our own life. There's no better way to get attention from people than to let them know that you really do care about them, that you really are concerned about them, that the Holy Spirit is taking your life and my life on a day-to-day -day basis and being so Christian that people see it. And they're curious, and they wonder about it. And when we have their attention, we see that as an opportunity to present the living Christ and his message of forgiveness, repentance to a new way of life. That's what he's called us to. It's not just about us. It's about us impacting our world for Jesus Christ.